Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I'd like to begin with some helpful advice should you ever find yourself in ordained ministry. Stranger things have happened. Never, ever use T-Pain as an example in your sermons. So I did this once, and it was a church that allowed screens in the uh, worship space, and not just for stained glass, but for other things, too. And I was using T-Pain as an example of something or other. You know, the famous rapper who has the furry top hats and the grills and the heavy use of auto-tune. He's not that famous now, but he was for a while. And I put his picture on the screen as I was talking about him because it was a lot of white people and they didn't know who he was. (laughs) And as a result, I had to have not one but two conversations with people who were really offended. It was one of the few times that people got up and walked out of a (laughs) sermon There have been a few times where people have gotten, not walk out offended, but a little bit peeved or maybe confused by something I said or they heard it wrong and uh, like the time I said that Journey was the best rock band of all time and, you know, had to deal with that fallout. (laughs) Like that, exactly, exactly. I don't know if you've ever listened to the lyrics of Crazy Train by Ozzy Osbourne, and in it he says, I've listened to preachers, I've listened to fools, and many times I have been both at the same time. But you know what has never happened? People have walked out, people have gotten offended, I've had to have conversations at coffee shops, but not one time has the congregation formed a murderous mob and dragged me to a cliff with every intention of just pushing me off. Never once has happened. It happens in this reading from Luke chapter 4. Jesus preaches a very short, seemingly innocuous sermon, and they want to throw him off a cliff. Every time in life and in Scripture, whenever there's a huge emotional reaction to something, this maybe has happened to you in a relationship with someone close to you where you say something that you think is pretty mundane, fairly benign, and there's a volcanic eruption that is produced. This can happen around dinner tables. It can happen on car rides on the way to church. Uh, and whenever that happens, there's always an indication that there's something else going on. You've You've triggered something that touches something else, and there's an explosion. And with these folks, Jesus preaches a sermon. There's a little bit of post-sermon debrief. You know that muttering that happens after a sermon gets finished? I see you people turn to one another. There's that. Jesus responds to some of that. And there's a volcanic eruption. That's when the crowd says, all right, the reasonable thing to do in this situation is to throw Jesus off a cliff. Why in the world? That's my question. What did he say that was so offensive that they would do that? What does it say about human beings in general? And I think we might find ourselves diagnosed here. 
And what kind of help is there in this passage? So, just to recap, Jesus has arrived in his hometown of Nazareth, and he's gone to church, synagogue, but we'll paraphrase for our context. And he reads from the book of Isaiah, as Neil said last week, and says, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, it's about me. And as Neil said, mic drop. And that's the end of this very brief sermon. And that's when the muttering begins, and you'll notice what they say here. The first thing they say is, oh, very nice, very nice. It's what you say when you're leaving church, good sermon, good sermon. Sometimes I have it even preached that Sunday, and you're like, good sermon, good sermon. (laughs) I won't correct you. <laughs> They're amazed how gracious his words were. And then something else happens. They say, isn't this Joseph's son? And that's when Jesus then says the thing that produces the cliff-throwing mob. Here are two things that I observe about the people in Nazareth. The first thing is that they are conscious of status. They are aware of status. You get this because they say, isn't this Joseph's son? Which may at first sound rather innocuous, but you know the answer to the question. No. It is not Joseph. Remember Christmas? Remember that whole... It's not Joseph's son. And in this region of Galilee, it's a very small area and word travels fast, and there would have remained questions about Jesus' parentage, Mary's potential extracurricular activities, Joseph being a chump, all these things. And also, Joseph is a day laborer, kind of a, uh, we say carpenter, which has a nice ring to it. We imagine him there working in his wood shop, the smell of sawdust. But really, the word is tecton, and it means somebody who was kind of a construction worker, basically. What, what, how can this guy get up and preach? Joseph's son isn't, we know this guy. So they're aware of status. They're checking resume. That's what I want to observe with you. And then the second thing sort of goes along with that. Anytime you have somebody or a group of people who are aware of status, they're always also aware of relative status. By which I mean not just where are you, but where are you compared to other people? Are you higher than? Are you lower than? Are you at the same level? How am I doing relative to other people? Comparing oneself to others is something that we do all the time. Uh, you, you realize they're doing this because Jesus, who knows what they're thinking, says, doubtless you will say to me, do hear what you did in Capernaum. Basically saying, I know that you know that I did some fancy tricks in Capernaum. And you're a little jealous because you're my hometown, and I did them there first at our cross-town rival. And now you want me to do them here so that you can put a sign out in front of the town as you enter that has the logos of the Kiwanis Club, the Rotary Club, the Lions Club, and also says, Home of Jesus of Nazareth, all-around entertainer and miracle worker. 
So why don't you do here what you did in Capernaum, and if you don't mind, maybe you could even kick it up a notch a little bit. Heal a few more people a little bit more extravagantly. They are aware of status, and they are also aware of relative status, and they want Jesus to bolster their status relative to other people. There's a rather provocative controversial preacher who I'm sure actually many people have walked out of her sermons, but named Nadia Boltz Weber. Her books have been banned and all this, but she tweeted something really interesting recently. Our drug of choice is knowing who we're better than. That's the Nazarenes. That's us. And it's so subtle and so endemic and so universal, we don't even notice when we're doing it. We even sanction it. That's what sports is all about. I see all these wonderful Christian people at McLean Stadium going, kill, kill, kill. You know... Our guys on the field got more points on that board than those guys on the field, and we're better. We like to be better, and we do this. That's sort of a silly example, but we do it all the time with all kinds of things. We compare, we evaluate, we judge, and any time that you are aware of relative status, what that implies is that there is some sort of standard. There is a ruler that you're using to measure other people and yourself, and it doesn't matter what side of the ruler you're on. People that are very fit tend to judge people who are not. They're not taking care of themselves. If they would just walk 30 minutes a day. And then people who are not fit, they judge the people that are. Those people are so full of themselves. What do they think? They're so special. My life, my, my, life, my work is too full. My family's too, I don't have time to work out. Oh, I hate those people. So full of themselves. Right? So one, you're, me, you're measuring people no matter which side you're on. It always implies, when you're dealing with status and relative status, what it always means is there is a standard that you're using to judge other people. And the result of this is exhaustion and anger. Because if you're dealing with standards and you're dealing with judgment and relative status and sort of comparing all the time, you're very aware of your place in line, as it were, to get the goodies And you can't stand it when people cut the line. The Nazarenes can't stand it that the Capernaumites got Jesus' magic tricks first. And you know that's how they feel because of what happens when Jesus tells two Bible stories. Jesus is a great preacher. He preaches a sermon. They say, isn't this great? He knows what they're really thinking. He says, let's have a little post-church Sunday school. Open your Bibles with me to the story about the widow in Zarephath and the story about Naaman the Syrian. And isn't it interesting that you'll notice that when there was a famine in Israel, God did not provide magical food for the Israelites, but he did it for this widow who was from the wrong tribe, the wrong religion, the wrong people. And she's the one that got the food that never ran out in the famine. The one who broke like all the Ten Commandments, or at least the big ones. And then look at Naaman the Syrian. Lots of people had skin diseases in Israel, and yet Naaman, the general of the army of Israel's sworn enemy, he's the one that gets healed of leprosy. These people are cutting the line, and we're infuriated about it. 
being aware of status, relative status, and measuring yourself versus other people, there's lots of ways to do it. Politically, you can do it based on your job performance. You can do it based on your pedigree. You can do it based on your level of income. You can do it, you can actually do it, you can feel superior to other people because your life is harder and you have more suffering than other people. It's amazing the ways we're able to compare ourselves to others. So what do we do? This is the issue that the passage reveals. Well, what does Jesus do? It's pretty interesting in that he doesn't try to reason with them. He doesn't try to say, but it's in the scriptures. He does the most Jedi-like thing of his entire ministry. There's this crowd, and he sort of Obi-Wan Kenobi's them. He just sort of slips out. Because he needs to die, but not just then. He knows that for angry people who are desperate to compare and always striving to measure up, keeping track of who is and who isn't, knowing where they are in line. The only thing you can do for people like that is to let them know that the ruler has been thrown away. That whatever demands there are that you're trying to measure up, nobody's actually checking the score anymore. And so he goes to die later on for their sins and for the sins of the whole world. That you can know that there's nothing more you have to do, there's nothing more you have to earn, there's nothing more you have to prove. You can actually have that thing that you always say that you want, which is peace, which is rest, because Jesus goes to take care of everything to let you know that you are worthy, you are valued, not because of how much you've succeeded or how much you've avoided failure, but simply because it is God's nature to love and to forgive even murderous crowds, even you. Amen.